Rusty Quill presents. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. West Side Fairy Tales is a dark fiction and horror podcast. The story you are about to hear is violent and disturbing. Exercise discretion before listening. Previously on Scars in Time. Despite her hesitation, Darcy has decided to move with Ash back to West Virginia and the two of them finish wrapping up the last threads of their lives in Colorado. On Ash's last day on campus, she speaks with one of her few promising students, Coraline, and comes face to face with a frightening vision of a crooked man standing alone in an art gallery. The night before their move, Ash dreams of a dark house filled with the sound of rain and typewriter keys. She wakes to a room engulfed in smoke, and she and Darcy scramble to escape their burning home. Now, without further ado, Chapter 3 of Scars in Time, The Trip. We learned about the fire that had destroyed our home through a series of text messages and emails on the cross-country drive to West Virginia. We didn't leave until a couple days after the fact, though most of that time they spent putting out hot spots and tearing down parts of the house that might fall on our neighbor's property. We stayed in a double tree outside of Denver, not sleeping at all the night of the fire and then sleeping for nearly 14 hours from the next afternoon into the following day. We almost missed checkout. 
fire started with my laptop. Either the unit itself or the cord had malfunctioned in the night, and from there the fire had spread to the folding table. The table had smoldered and collapsed, and then the carpet had gone up pretty quickly. The carpet in question is a fairly flammable variety that's generally prohibited from sale. The report from the fire inspector read, Once it caught, the fire progressed quickly into the bookshelves on the walls and then into the walls themselves. The report continued to detail the spread of the fire into the kitchen and a few other rooms, as well as how the layout of the house and the surrounding neighborhood prevented the firefighters on scene from stopping the blaze before it completely gutted the home. They included pictures with the report. Most of them were of blackened surfaces I only barely recognized as parts of my home. The island in the middle of the kitchen was miraculously untouched, save by a smattering of ashes. Our bed was destroyed, but the wall behind it was fine. The laminate on the headboard had bubbled off into a pool on the floor, which you could see through the blackened inner springs of the mattress. The office itself was completely gone, with only the charred bones of the wall studs remaining like some boxy ribcage. The metal frame of the collapsible table stood as though nothing had happened, though it was completely black. The chair I'd been sitting in just hours before the fire was an unrecognizable lump of scorched nothing sitting on a concrete floor covered in strings of melted plastic and ash. At the center of it was my laptop, warped but still recognizably open and facing the remains of the chair. The cord looked like a length of unraveled black yarn disappearing into the ash piles at the base of the wall. We can get you a new one, obviously, Darcy said glancing over at me as she drove. Our Tesla's engine was a low humming compared to the wind roaring through the window beside her. We were on I-70 now, hurtling toward Kansas City and places east. Despite her going about 80 miles an hour, she still kept the windows down when she drove. I looked over at her, blinking against the wind. It's not that, I said, shutting off the phone. Her phone. Mine had been charging in the kitchen and was now a cracked, blackened lump of digital baklava welded to our kitchen counter. It's just... I sighed and shrugged. We have nowhere to go back to now. If we chicken out? She asked, laughing. You know, we couldn't really back out anyway. I already have a job there. Her face got a little serious. It was her turn to be pensive now. A job I honestly have to do. I grabbed her arm and squeezed. There were no doctors in the town of Gun Cotton, where we were headed. It was the sort of dead little mining town I'd heard about often growing up. West Virginia was small enough that everybody knew at least a bit about every other part of the state, though I was for sure more familiar with Blunt and Beckley and Tar Grady than with Gun Cotton. Enough to know, at least, that the town had been all but dead until a decade or so back. Somebody had taken the whole municipality over in the early 2000s and turned the place around, enough at least to make it into some sort of hipster, arts and hiking paradise in the mountains. Or so I heard. Rumors still held the place was plenty dangerous and no less affected by the opioid crisis afflicting most of West Virginia. Also, it didn't have a single doctor in a town of some 5,000 or more residents, which meant they all had to travel more than an hour to Beckley for treatment. This was Darcy's chance not just to open her own practice, but to provide medical care for a desperate population. It was something she always talked about, a deeply held dream that, for what I understood of it, was the basis for her becoming a doctor at all. Something she might have done even if she'd never met me. Now it was right there in front of her, her chance to do something incredible with her gifts. I'd been so swept up in my own selfish horseshit since early summer that it wasn't even something I connected with the town in my mind. To me, it was still just a chance to write again. A selfish, almost childish goal when compared with the real, physical good Darcy might accomplish in this place. It made me feel small and stupid and self-absorbed, but I squeezed her hand all the same. She looked at me and smiled.
The trip passed by in a series of rumbling daydreams that saw the American countryside shift from the endless bedsheet flatness of the plains to the ruffles and folds of the Appalachian foothills in Kentucky. We stopped in a number of places without incident, stretching and looking around and trying to find what exactly made that place any more individual or specific than the rest of the United States. I did my best to keep Darcy comfortable during the long drive, navigating with the phone's GPS and flipping through stations on the radio to find something interesting to listen to. I couldn't drive, given my condition, so I felt guilty leaving the brunt of that responsibility to her. The entire trip comprised about 20-some-odd hours of driving over four days, and I spent most of that feeling bad about how much I had to lean on my wife for everything. I said as much to her, but she waved it away the way she always did, which I suppose let me off the hook, but never made me feel much better. Between the two of us, she was the real breadwinner. Her work was steady, honest, and well-paying, whereas my job was something of a dice roll. I'd go months, years without steady pay. I worked, but the work never felt like work. It was very much in the vein of, do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life. As I found out getting older, if you do too much of what you love, you start to hate doing anything else. On top of all that was the lingering feeling that, no matter how much Darcy loved me, if one day she decided to get rid of me, she could. It was an errant, persistent paranoia. I was mentally ill and ill-employed. The exotic fish in a tank only Darcy could, or would, maintain. I often thought that if I met some casual death in the next few years, short cancer or a sudden fall, I might be more used to her as a fond memory and a collection of stories she could sometimes mull over in the company of a newer, better spouse. I spent most of the distance between St. Louis and Louisville, lost in the daydream of my own death. In it, I was an invisible, intangible specter haunting the new home Darcy and I were about to move into. I floated around her as she did her morning chores, as she continued the reconstruction of the building's hideous basement and hosted the occasional guest. She lived happily in my daydream, if alone. Mostly, she went to work and came home lighting candles and sipping at bottle after bottle of wine. I noticed she was drinking rosé from my perch behind the tall, glass front window. Soft, late autumn noises filled the air around me, rushing wind and Johnny-come-lately squirrels foraging in the fallen leaves. The glass was cold beneath my fingers, though I couldn't feel it. She sat on a couch I'd never seen, It was, for sure, nothing we'd ever buy for ourselves on purpose. The thing seemed to be almost twenty feet wide and upholstered with rich red velvet tucked down in thick dimples where it was affixed to the cushions. A television, our television, sat between us at a sideways angle and cast alternating flickers of white and purple over Darcy's face. The wood of the couch was terribly old and scarred, I saw, figuring it must have been recently refurbished. She didn't notice the shape wobbling out of the shadows behind her. It was a blob the size and shape of a man, but black and incoherent as a dead leaf beneath the surface of a frozen pond. I pressed against the glass, but there was no moving it, no pushing beyond the simple pain between my wife and I. The figure approached closer, unfurling itself. There was shifting, moving inside of it. She screamed when it touched her, and then I saw blood. Flesh boiled away from her neck and shoulders, hissing and sputtering and pooling and smoking little swamps in the dimpled surfaces of the couch. I tried to beat against the glass to scream, but I was merely an observer, no more a part of the action than a jellyfish trapped in a jelly jar, floating, feeling. My face shifted forward quickly and my forehead slammed against the glass, waking me. I shouted and hissed and rubbed the aching spot above my right eye. I was back on the road, I-64 just outside of Louisville. Darcy's hand grabbed my left arm and squeezed it. I turned to see her giving me a worried look. Jesus, babe, are are you okay? She asked, 
glancing back and forth from the road. Louisville loomed ahead of and then over us, a smattering of tall buildings marking the downtown there and then behind us so quickly I barely got a look at them. Yeah, I said, rubbing my head. What? What happened? Some asshole in a truck just cut into our lane and almost smashed me against the guardrail. She said, looking back as though the guy might still be behind us. I swerved to get around, get away from him, and you hit your head on the window. We blew clear of the city, and the road was suddenly straight and narrow and rimmed by heavy forest. You were sitting up and sleeping with your head back against the headrest, and then... Bam! I touched the sore spot. Well, at least we didn't crash, I offered. She sighed and nodded, scanning the empty road ahead with added fervor. I thought I'd hit something for a second, she said. I looked at her and saw she really was terrified. I took her hand in mine and then laid my opposite fingers on her wrist, counting her heartbeats while looking at the radio clock. Like 120, I said. She laughed. You're just guessing, she said. I was. I'm not, I lied. You're terrified. She laughed harder and I kissed the back of her wrist, returning the hand to my lap. She squeezed my thigh. It was pretty scary, though, she said. Is your head okay? I told her it was and she squeezed my leg again, happy she hadn't actually hurt me. If you want, we could pull off and I could give you a little checkup. I could use my phone light and make sure you aren't concussed. I'd smiled at her flirting, but the thought of that concussion check reminded me of the vision in the hospital. That tall, foul-toothed doctor with the dirty glasses shining a light in my eyes in that broken elevator. A thin, cold chill rolled up my spine. No, I said, just a bit too quickly. She gave me a concerned look, and then it was my turn to laugh, mostly at myself. I, uh, I'm fine. The concerned look faded, but I could tell it wasn't completely gone. I cleared my throat and tried to sound sexy. But, uh, if you want to find an empty rest stop and give me a once-over, I wouldn't mind that, doctor. I said, saying that last bit like Eartha Kitt singing Santa Baby. Darcy laughed out loud at that and leaned over to my side of the car. She pulled me close enough to kiss my neck and then put her lips by my ear. That's fucking gross, she whispered, and then we were both laughing. You don't like the thought of all this spread out over a splintered picnic table baby, I said, running my hands over my waist and hips and putting on the Eartha Kit voice again. I realized then I was only sort of joking. The thought of Darcy and, really, just being naked and vulnerable like that under the bare sun made me shiver. I nibbled the end of her finger, but she pulled away slowly and put it back on the wheel. I like the thought of you spread out anywhere, she said, eyes again on the road. Anywhere, but a fucking rest stop. She shook her head. Ugh. I think if I'd been born in a few decades earlier when the only way you could find someone was rest stops and nasty bars in bad parts of town, I would have just died alone. It was a feeling I'd heard her articulate before, but it was only part true. She would have probably met a partner the same way she met me, striking up a conversation about bad wine in the aisles of a college liquor store. A one in a thousand meeting that had led to the longest relationship of either of our lives, and for sure the happiest. Darcy's real hang-up was just with her own body and her own sexuality. Not being gay, but being sexual at all. She didn't value or view sex the way I did. She liked it to be personal and comfortable and casual. And it's not like I minded that sort of interaction. My preferences were just so broad they could accommodate it. I was disappointed, sure, but I lay my hand on her leg and squeezed it all the same. In a few miles, I'd all but forgotten my odd daydream of that thing killing her. Despite having never driven an automobile, I still managed to nearly crash our car outside of Grayson, Kentucky. What I'd seen I thought couldn't be real, 
In fact, I thought it was crazy I could be seeing it anywhere outside of old West by God, Virginia herself. Get off at this next exit, I yelled. Grabbing Darcy hard enough by her arm, the car jerked a bit on the roadway. We were going just under 85 miles per hour, so both our hearts started pounding when the tires chirped. But we survived, and my mind was soon back on other matters. It was about two in the afternoon, which wasn't perfect for what was about to happen, but I could live with it. Darcy, God bless her, obliged me and mashed the brakes. We swung off I-64 and I directed her through downtown Grayson, my head slightly outside the window as I kept an eye on the sign in the sky. Then we were there, impossibly, magically, and we weren't even in West Virginia. Darcy sighed. Are you fucking kidding me, Ash? She asked. We could have died. Worth it, I said, giving her a knowing look and then crossing my arms. Totally worth it. Before us, in all its squat, sweaty, greasy glory was an authentic, in-the-flesh, goddamn Tudor's biscuit world. Darcy pulled into the lot and found a parking spot by the door. We might as well hop out here, she said. I need to use the restroom anyway. What do you want? I asked. I'll order while you're in there. She rolled her eyes and tried to remember the menu. Whichever one has sausage and egg on it, she said. Iran, I told her. You want anything else? Anything else? She asked, raising an eyebrow. Just one of those things nearly killed me the last time I ate it. Can't we just get McDonald's or something down the road? You're about to be a West Virginian, babe, I said, grinning at her. You've got to get your tutor's level way, way up. I honestly hadn't felt this light for days, for months. We were standing on opposite sides of the car now, me with my arms folded over the passenger side door. Your patients will reject you if they find out you don't like tutors. They'll need to smell it on you when you get close. She made a face and I laughed. I'll... Oh, I'll get whatever that other thing you get is, she said. The one with the pepperoni. A peppy! I shouted. She rolled her eyes and walked inside, and I followed close behind, tickling her sides when we passed through the second set of doors. An older man gave us a weird look when he saw me touching her, but I didn't bother acknowledging it. Darcy broke off for the bathroom, and I hopped in line behind a woman hauling a baby so heavy it made her crooked, and a man with a beer gut so thick it bent him more than the baby bent the lady. He was wearing an ancient, faded MAGA hat but didn't seem like a piece of shit. And maybe he wasn't. I made my go-to order, a peppy, pepperoni and cheese on a biscuit, and a Mary B, bacon, egg, and cheese on a biscuit. And Darcy got a Ron and her own peppy. I ordered a couple soft drinks on top of that and then paid and stood off to the side near Mr. Beer Gut to wait for my food. I know it's dumb to associate home with some grease pit restaurant. In fact, I never exactly loved tutors before I left West Virginia for college. One of the unfortunate things I learned as I became an adult was that all the bad things I'd associated with living in West Virginia as a child were pretty much everywhere else, too. Homophobia, xenophobia, racism, and a moronic belief in the future of the coal industry persisted unabated outside the borders of my mountainous little homeland. In fact, I found that most of that trash thinking wasn't necessarily created in West Virginia, but dumped there by bigots and carpetbaggers with home addresses in places I'd always considered bastions of liberal free thought. New York, Washington, D.C., and the dozens of other major cities I'd end up visiting on book tours were as or more full of bigots, racists, and the unrepentantly greedy than the mountain state. The only difference between them and the people back home were that West Virginians were comparatively shit poor and too honest to hide their ignorance. The one thing about West Virginia I'd never been able to find anywhere else, other than that feeling you sometimes get when you're on some lonely road and you and the last long bars of sunlight are all trapped together in the shimmering gold and red canopies of a holler in autumn, were those goddamn biscuits. 
Our tray was on the counter before Darcy was out of the bathroom, so I grabbed it and filled my drink and took a seat by the window. The town outside wasn't much of a town. More of a low, flat collection of buildings and businesses that had accidentally accrued a population and now had to govern itself. Pretty much the basic sort of place you'd run into on most of I-64, the unsung east-west arterial highway of middle America. A road that starts just outside of St. Louis and runs all the way to the coast, just outside Chesapeake, Virginia. That same stretch of highway cut right through the heart of West Virginia, and I could even see it from my parents' backyard in the cliffs above the city of Charleston, where I was born and raised. I would stand outside sometimes and look down at the highway lights, smoking pot and having adolescent daydreams of just getting on that highway and leaving for what I thought of as better places. The closest I could get as a kid was biking down the mountainside through downtown Charleston with my friends. We'd go anywhere we could on those things, though most of the time we kept to our side of the river. But, occasionally, we'd get all the way out to Washington Street on Charleston's east end and eat at the Tudors there by the Capitol building. For the first time since before the fire, I felt the corded strands of air pulling at me and the electric tingle inside my skull. My mouth went dry, and I glanced around nervously, both afraid of what I might see and desperate to find Darcy. Without her to ground me, or at least keep me contained, I could completely detach. The thought of being dragged to some eastern Kentucky jail cell after spooking the locals fully chilled my blood. You might not believe it yourself, but from experience, I can tell you that crazy people and ignorant cops mix about as well as fire and dynamite. I'd never been the victim of any police brutality in my life, thank God. But I'd seen a couple people in this psych ward or that sporting bullet wounds both fresh and old. Even more with ugly, patchy scars on their wrists from being handcuffed to some wall while the police left them to burn themselves out during an episode. Or with little crisscross white scars on their cheeks and scalps. The memories of bygone beatings. Some of that wasn't even the cops doing but other prisoners they'd irritated when the state sent them to jail for disturbing the peace instead of somewhere they could actually get treated. I felt myself being crushed between two parallel fears right there in Tudors, so I tried to just wait it out like a summer rain. I focused on my food and the taste in my mouth, tried to keep myself grounded in reality even as the threads tugged and pulled and cajoled me to fade out, to sink down into the delusion like a bad itch. Eventually I had to obey, and I looked up. There I was, with my old group of friends, a lot of them now dead, going on 30 years. Marley, Ricky, and, of course, Mike. I was young and incredibly boyish looking, my hair at shoulder length because I was both too embarrassed to grow it to the conservative, girly length expected of me, and too chicken shit to just cut it short like I wanted. Marley and Mike sat on the opposite side of the table, and Ricky was beside me against the wall. They were all talking about some banal shit, this girl or that, sort of subtly ignoring how interested I was in what they were saying. Mike especially was being vulgar, trying to get a rise out of me I didn't know I was supposed to give and actually looking a touch frustrated when the nasty shit he was saying didn't get a response. Like Kathleen Polsky, he said. Did you guys see her doing those stretches in gym class? We told him we hadn't, because he was the only one who had a gym period with Kathleen Polsky. So we do the one where you sort of put your butt up and your hands out? He gave a half-assed demonstration. And the other chicks in class would be all, ooh, and keep their back straight and their butts kind of down, you know? But Polsky, fuck, dude, her back would curve like this, so her ass was just like floating above her knees, man. He put his hand on the table, bending his fingers so that his wrist became Kathleen Polsky's mythical backside. When a girl can bend her back like that, that's how you know she likes it from behind, he said, raising his eyebrows to Marley and Ricky, 
Ricky laughed and Marley cleared his throat. But I could see the younger me thinking about that claim, shifting in her seat and trying to hide how she arched her back by stretching at the same time. I could see Marley staring at the younger me's chest while my eyes were up on the ceiling. Mike looked too, though his eyes were more discreet. Ricky just played with the crumbs on his wrapper, gathering them into a pile he could pinch and then drop into his mouth. I don't know if that matters. Younger me finally said, shrugging. I don't see what it would change. All the boys looked at the younger me then, and she laughed, giving them all a stupid expression. Like, nothing changes down there if you can arch your back a bunch. She shrugged, feeling a touch stupid for sharing. What? Not what do you know anyway, Mike said, waving his hand at the younger me. She glared at him for a second and then shook her head, bailing on the conversation to spend more time with the peppy she'd ridden all the way from South Hills to eat. I remembered this conversation, even some of the trip that had led to it. It was the beginning of summer, and I had worn pants because shaving my legs was too much of a pain, and the guys made fun of my leg hair when they saw it. Then they'd always make fun of Mike's leg hair, which was fairer and far more sparse, reminding him that he was the biggest girl in the group. Then he'd be mad at me for the rest of the day. His baggage had led me to nearly sweating to death in mid-80-degree heat. I watched the young me take a napkin from the table dispenser and wipe her forehead. She dropped the sweaty napkin onto her tray and finished the meal, leaning back again and accidentally showing off the two distracting lumps of fat beneath her shirt. She didn't notice, but Marley did. And so did Mike. Hey, let me get that for you, Mike said, picking up the younger me's tray and stacking it on top of his own. Younger me shrugged and stayed leaning back, stomach full and eyes closed. Even I could see the allure in my own young neck, the smooth, lightly tanned skin and smattering of perspiration. That younger me trying to cool off in the busted Tudor's air conditioning was something else, entirely, to the others in the group. Hey, can you take mine too? Ricky asked. Mike gave him a hard look and then shrugged, stuffing Ricky's tray awkwardly beneath his own. The others ignored him after that, but future me watched him make the trip to the garbage can. Watched him pluck the sweaty napkin off the tray and give the restaurant a quick glance before tucking the wet napkin under his nose and smelling it. Then he shoved the napkin in his pants pocket and dropped the garbage, trays and all, into the trash can. The thought of him smelling me like that, even thirty years and all sense of reality removed, sickened me enough to give me heartburn. That was the nature of our relationship. That was how sick it had been even then, though the younger me had yet to notice. I turned to her, and my heart stopped. What remained was a mix of two images, superimposed over one another. There was that younger me in the Tudor's biscuit world, sweating and putting out some clueless sexual energy that was, even then, driving one of our little group insane. But over that lay another picture of me, half a year older and laying in that same position on the frozen mountain road down from my house. I had lived both those moments, but the second was different. Instead of merely injured, I was dead and cold, my eyes mirroring the soft colorlessness of the winter sky beyond me. Fat snowflakes fell onto my face and failed to melt. I heard a terrible coughing then, and turned to see Mike doubled over beside the trash can. He was dressed the same in the idiotic teenage fashions of our high school years, but he was older, my age, in fact. His eyes were red and wet and angry, and they were looking right at me. He started moving toward me, coughing with his hand clasped over his mouth. Even as I watched, thick black tar burst through his fingers. It smoked and sputtered over his flesh. He looked with disgust at his own dissolving hand. But it didn't slow him a bit. He simply tried to clean it by flicking his fingers to the side, which had the effect of degloving him down to the bone. The flesh on his fingers and most of his palms slid off clean, 
spattering over the table beside him. Mr. Beergut, who I'd been in line behind earlier, didn't seem to notice the trail of smoking gristle now eating into his face and the sandwich he was biting into. I clasped my hands over my mouth to keep him screaming as much as to keep from being sick. Mike tried to say something then, pointing the bones that remained of his fingers at me for emphasis, but another spat of coughing overtook him. He stumbled against the wooden partition beside where our group of friends had sat. The other two were as dead as me now, almost impossible to look at for the odd double exposure effect. Mike made a noise like a sneeze and his eyes ruptured. The right eye broke the natural containment of its socket and hung half out of his face, and the left eye burst entirely to run down his cheek. His gore-blackened teeth dropped out of his mouth and clattered over the floor. Some of them slid up against my shoe. The rest lay smoking in puddles of black on the tile. He stumbled forward in a last-ditch effort to reach me before he completely fell apart. I could see deep gray at his temples that reminded me of his dad. A hand grabbed my shoulder, startling me back to reality. Darcy was giving me a quizzical look, punctuated by occasional glances around the restaurant to see what I'd been staring at. I knew without her saying so that I'd had some terribly alarming expression on my face. I looked down to see my half-eaten Peppy still in my hands. She sat down across from me. Her face was the most beautiful thing in the whole goddamn world in that moment. Are you okay? She asked, wiping a tear off my cheek I didn't know was there. I grabbed her hand and kissed it, leaving a lipstick mark of biscuit crumbs on her palm. I nodded. I'm sorry. Yeah. I said. I took a bite of the biscuit sandwich and looked around the restaurant myself. Everything was where it was supposed to be. I was in my seat. My long-dead friends were in some distant graveyards. And Darcy was right across from me. I had a peppy in my hands and it tasted delicious. What else did I need? I'm okay, I told her. And even now I wonder if we both knew I was lying. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello, my name is Tyler Bell and I'm the host of the West Side Fairy Tales. For better or worse, this operation is basically a one-man show. I do all the writing, reading, editing, music, and the various other production aspects. Yui Breedlove does all the wonderful episode art you see online. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider compensating us for the experience. Anything, even just a dollar, lets us know that you believe the West Side Fairy Tales is content you appreciate. You can donate to our efforts directly through the PayPal link on our website, westsidefairytales.com or by pledging to support us on Patreon. For just a dollar there, you'll get access to these episodes without ads like this, and for $5 or more, you get access to members-only content, including fully produced ebooks of the episodes and behind-the-story lore episodes. And, at $10 or more, we'll start sending you special merch packs and a whole lot of other stuff. The West Side Fairy Tales is a one-of-a-kind production. And we can't thank you enough for just taking the chance to give us a listen. But odd, off-the-wall, incredibly unique productions like this are self-funded. And, without the generous support of listeners like you, we wouldn't be able to stay on the air. So, please consider keeping great horror independent and supporting the West Side Fairy Tales today. Thank you, and, as always, stay safe out there. Now, back to our program already in progress. West Virginia was just as I remembered it, because West Virginia never changes. We passed through the outskirts of Ashland, a collection of white refinery towers and tubes and pipes that looked like somebody had replaced most of what you could see of the river valley there with the surface of the Death Star. Then came the sign, wild and wonderful, West Virginia, and I was home again for the first time in over ten years. The last visit had been after my father's death, He'd followed Mom by just a handful of months, and I'd flown in to pay my respects amongst a handful of extended family that recognized me, mostly, from book sleeves and television appearances. I'd said some lovely things at both funerals and meant them, and had never bothered going back. I'd never actually driven into the state from this direction before, and it was crazy to me just how well-defined the border is between West Virginia and everything else. The entrance out of Ashland is a bridge that winds up from the valley and never quite stops winding from there. The road twists and drops and curves around hills and skips over valleys bridge by bridge. After the long, barely sloped roads of middle and eastern Kentucky, all of that being 70 miles an hour, you're suddenly forced to pay strict attention to your whereabouts. The speed limit drops to something around 60, I think, in the areas around Cerrado and Canova and Huntington. But people only slow down if they feel like it. Mostly they just drive with a feel for the road, going 55 uphill and cracking 90 on the downslope. Everybody else huddles into the right lane until they're too damn sick of sitting behind semis and then they're out there in the left lane too, suddenly feeling like Formula One drivers in their Sonatas and Priuses and Civics, cutting corners wide and feathering the gas like old pros. There's a tightness to everything as well. All the occupied spaces are in the haulers tucked between the mountain ridges or spilled out across valleys like steel and brick flowers blooming in the sun. And you will see nothing of these places until you are upon them or in them, because the mountains sequester every path and stretch of road into a series of great green tunnels. You can be a stone's throw from 10,000 people and never know it, never be forced to deal with it. For a person like me, who spent most of her life selfishly living in the space between her own ears, it's like a dream come true. Each pocket of glade or clearing or flat top amongst the trees and deadfalls and cliffs and hollers is a promise of peace and solitude. A deluded sort of loneliness with all the sting pulled out of it, because you know there's somebody else just a stone's throw away living the same sort of life. Even if it's different, they're there, in the mountains 
alone with everybody else. Maybe it sounds miserable if you're not me, but I love it. Had loved it all my life and only just realized it when we were on those twisting, winding roads again. I needed this place. Even though some of those hidden little pockets held some of my worst memories, all the good ones were there, too. Just a stone's throw away, like I said. Enjoying yourself? Darcy asked. I turned to see her grinning and realized a smile was pasted across my own face. Yeah, I said, laughing and turning away in embarrassment. I haven't seen you smile like this in a long time, Ash, she said softly. Beneath us spanned the great gray bridge that would float us over the river by South Charleston and head us directly into the city of Charleston itself, the state capital, my hometown. We'd been driving through the state for about an hour, but it felt like seconds. This is good for us. I can feel it. I think so too, I said, taking her hand for maybe the 50th time that day. It wasn't an uncommon gesture between us, but I hadn't felt this affectionate in a long time. Not that I didn't still love my wife, but every fire cools in time. One day, even the sun will have to die. Still, it was nice to feel her hand in mine. We passed through Charleston without stopping, though Darcy suggested a few times that it wouldn't be a bother to detour by my old house if I'd wanted to. I think it soured some of the good feelings between us when I got a little panicky telling her I didn't. She knew most, as much as I could tell her, of what happened between Ricky, Marley, Mike, and me during that far-gone fall and winter. She knew even better what had happened to me in the ensuing aftermath. The fire and my court-ordered stay in Weston. After all, I wrote a book about it. But there was a lot she didn't know. Things that nobody knew but me and the dead and that thing that had been party to everything. The least of it was that since I left my bedroom the day I started the fire, the day I burned down that old house and the acres of forest around it, I had never been back. I hadn't so much as set foot in my parents' house since then. It was Mike's fault, of course, as well as whatever that thing was that had set all those events in motion, but mostly Mike because I had terrible dreams about what he'd wanted to do to me in my room, of being trapped in there with him. Nightmares, only half remembered, of my life if I hadn't escaped from him, if I'd been too weak or too unlucky. The nightmares had pushed me until I fought my way out of my room one last time. My mom had gathered my stuff for me and met me at the psychiatric hospital in Weston where they'd taken me after finding me in the woods and finishing my processing at the sheriff's office downtown. I'd gone back to Charleston just once as a teenager to have a judge pass sentence on me, and then I'd spent the next four or so years in the Trans-Allegheny Psychiatric Hospital. The thought of my childhood bedroom, my smattering of band posters covering most of the light pink paint my dad had put up when I was still a baby, was like the thought of an old tomb. Dead things lived there, in my mind at least. I could see the younger version of myself looking at the closed bedroom door and thinking about all of what could have been on the other side of it if it weren't for Mike. Mike in that fucking house. My good mood didn't sour, so much as neutralized as we drove through the deepest parts of West Virginia toward this town I'd been thinking of for months now. It's odd I haven't brought it up yet. We did do a fair amount of house shopping before deciding to move. I'd wanted to live in some secluded hilltop house with a couple of bedrooms, a couple of bathrooms, and a back porch you couldn't see unless you were either on it or looking down from an airplane. Darcy had gotten a gentrifier's itch and wanted to rehab some old place in keeping with the spirit of revitalization that everybody always seemed to go on about when talking about gun cotton. There had, apparently, been some terrible post-industrial accident in the town nearly 20 years back and the reconstruction was still going strong. Post-industrial accidents, for any of you from states where regulation and oversight aren't curse words, 
are industrial accidents that happen after the industry has died. In the case of gun cotton, some old mine had collapsed and killed several people, and then still others had gotten terribly sick afterward. It was the only sort of blessing in disguise you'd ever get in West Virginia, because the lawsuits and cleanups that followed somehow managed to turn the area completely around. You could even sort of see the difference just driving into the place. The sun had started to set by the time we passed the town's welcome sign, which didn't actually say welcome or really anything at all except gun cotton. Those two words were just metal cutouts, nice ones, affixed to a chain-link fence along with eight or ten little circular, triangular, and rectangular plaques all apparently representing the local Kiwanis chapters and the like. We drove past the sign, a lone gas station sitting outside of town, and over a long, new-looking bridge that curved over top a mostly shallow riverbed. Then we were on the main street, trying to find our way through a sparse crowd of people wandering around between food stalls and drinking beers from plastic cups. Jesus, where do we go? I asked. Darcy shrugged and pointed. That way, as far as I know, she said. I looked around. The bulk of the city rose to the right up shallow foothills that ended in a flat, brown mountain face. The buildings around us were all pretty basic, bars and shops and a smallish department-slash-grocery store named Ellison's. The largest building was, by far, this great, ugly, white block of aluminum siding with lettering over top that read, Chatterley Brewing and Bottling. I'd sort of heard of the company, though I hadn't realized they were based here. You could smell the beer being made a strong, though not entirely unpleasant, odor. I saw a smattering of massive houses, three stories at least, poking up from behind some of the smaller shop fronts along the hill. I thought perhaps one of those might be our new home and suggested as much to Darcy. I might have forgotten to mention this, but she'd played her cards close to her chest about the new place, which I didn't like but had no footing to argue about. I'd quite literally told her, I don't care where we live as long as it's in West Virginia. I'd meant that too, though when I'd said it, I'd been thinking much, much smaller scale. As in, I don't care where we live, even if it's smaller than the apartment I had in college. Since that small blunder on my part, Darcy had somehow managed to find something she'd only told me was big, old, and in need of some serious TLC. I'd sighed and shrugged and thanked her for doing most of the work. If you've never bought a house, the first time is the worst and the following times aren't much better. I was fairly glad to not be involved in the process because, for the most part, Darcy had better taste than me anyway and actually knew how to bargain and shop and appraise things. No, those aren't it, she said. Then she laughed to herself and smiled and bobbed her shoulders the way she did when she was getting ready to unveil a surprise. Not even close, babe. Not even close. Oh, God, I said, humoring her. She smiled at me and quickly turned her attention back to the people in the street. Most of them just smiled and raised their beers before shuffling out of the way. I thought it a bit odd they didn't have the street shut down, but I couldn't really even think what they might be celebrating. Then we were through the crowd and parked at an odd, wide intersection at the base of the hill. There were train tracks there, but oddly enough, only on the massive incline to our right. When I looked up, I saw two red and green cars slipping by each other, going in opposite directions along the slope. The gun cotton incline, Darcy said. She really had done all her homework. They apparently just got back up and running again. Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I said. I had a sinking gut feeling that one of the cars would suddenly break loose, soar down the hill and smash us into the side of the brewery. That was the only building left beside us. That, and an oddly shaped platform I realized was the station for the incline. Ahead of us was a simple concrete bridge, also fairly new-looking, and a dark neighborhood shaded over with dozens, maybe hundreds of huge ancient oak trees. Incredibly, most of their leaves were a dull, steely gray color, 
Or, once I thought about it, more the color of polished lead. Signs beside the bridge read, Old Town Gun Cotton, admittance to residents only, or by appointment. I looked at Darcy, she smiled at me, and then we drove across the bridge. Hey there, Westsiders. Enjoying the program? Then hop on Twitter, Reddit, or your podcast app and let everybody know how great the Westside Fairy Tales is. Taking a few seconds to rate us, review us, or share our latest episode and your thoughts on it helps get fresh ears on our stories and lets us rise up from the dark and sweltering pits of the sub-top 100 rankings. I know you folks appreciate a good summoning, so why not bring this eldritch and unseen thing to the unwedding masses? Utter our black name before your friends, family, and co-workers, and then tag us so we can retweet or share it. We're at WS Fairy Tales on Twitter and Westside Fairy Tales on Facebook and Instagram. Click link tree in the episode description for a comprehensive list of our social media connections. You can also send us an email at westsidefairytales at gmail.com. If your inner circle of living people are too undeserving of the West Side Fairy Tales, you can join our little cult, the West Side Fairy Tales Horror and Lit Club on Facebook. We talk about the episodes, books we've been reading, horror news, and all sorts of stuff, so pop on by. Thanks again for listening to the West Side Fairy Tales, and don't forget to give us a review on your favorite podcasting app after this episode. Now, back to our program, already in progress. The neighborhood on the other side was like a dream. There was a constant, ankle-deep fog once you were in the trees that kicked up from the sides of our car like water. The cobblestone streets boarded dozens of spots where the rocks had been pulled up or replaced to level out the roadway. Still, we bumped and jerked as we passed house after massive house. Most of them sat behind a handful of trees and bushes, barely visible from the road. All of the properties were ensconced behind twisting, wrought-iron fences that would come up to waist height on the average person. I nibbled at my lip, watching as something odd tumbled about in the fog. Something I thought I could hear clattering like a bunch of children's blocks being dumped into a toy box. Here we are, Darcy said. She parked the car and got out, stretching. I followed her feeling those knotted bands of air twisting around me. But they weren't pulling anymore, I suddenly knew. They had me where they wanted me. My heart was beating terribly fast. I felt sweat break out on my face. Now you have to promise not to get mad at me, she said with a chuckle. That's a shitty promise to make, I said. It was an inside joke between us, but I almost spat the words. She didn't notice. She just grabbed me by the hand and led me to a slightly arched gate that was almost indistinguishable from the rest of the fence. A shiny new padlock hung from the gate latch, though even my short ass could have jumped the thing fairly easily. Darcy opened the gate and led me inside. She was talking, pointing out this and that, but she didn't need to. I'd already seen this place before. Twice in real life and maybe a thousand times in my dreams. My eyes moved over every detail. The tall windows, the madly rising floors, the teardrop-shaped walkway leading up to the door and the little statuette of a fat man holding an umbrella inside of it. Then I looked all the way up, up to the very top where I knew the tiny fifth-floor garret was, and I imagined myself as a young woman looking down at this older and more ragged me. But what I saw was nothing but pure darkness. The windows were black, and the black was growing, expanding. It slipped out of its confinements in that small attic space and spread out over the world, leaked down to me and my wife. I felt myself stumble as the darkness reached me. 
And then everything was darkness. Everything. Coming up on Scars in Time. Darcy helps Ash pull herself together after a particularly bad episode. Ash's visions are growing more vivid and more obtrusive by the day, coalescing with a life-changing moment of self-destruction. hope you'll join us next time for chapter four of scars in time the town and until then as always stay safe out there the west side fairy tales is written read scored and produced by tyler bell original audio filmed on location in sutton west virginia and louisville kentucky Engineering and sound design by WSF Productions, LLC. Episode art by Yui Breedlove. All content here in copyright 2020, WSF Productions, LLC. sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Something's not quite right in the quiet mountain town of Targrady, West Virginia. Months after a local teen was lynched in the dead of a hot summer night, two men stand charged with murder in what the majority opinion considers to be an open and shut case. But Adelaide Stevenson... A young crime reporter from Charleston is finding out the smallest cracks in the official narrative run far, far deeper than she could have ever expected. Join Adelaide and West by God as she navigates small-town secrets, the dubious ethics of her own profession, and the dark whispers of an ancient creature, known to some as the Witcham Woman, who prowls the shadowed hollers that lie between night and nightmare. Sent on overnight assignment to cover the start of the trial, Adelaide quickly realizes the story she's been told, and been telling, doesn't make sense. Cryptic assertions of a concrete alibi are emailed to her by the family of the accused. Nobody in town seems comfortable discussing the basic facts of the case, and the murder she's been writing about wasn't the only tragic death this summer. Adelaide extends her stay against the wishes of her editor, 
and her investigations take a complicated and dangerous turn as she discovers the true depths of the mysteries surrounding Targrady. The only real evidence from the night of the murder may lie in the hands of a notorious local crime family led by an enigmatic woman known as the Fetid Queen. Local authorities seem to grow more hostile by the hour, and even Adelaide's own career might not survive this assignment. Featuring an eclectic cast of characters ranging from violent and horrifying to outlandish and fabulous, West by God is a must-read novel for anybody who enjoys Twin Peaks, Stephen King, and all the creepy places you find just off the path in the woods. It is the debut novel of Tyler Bell, a USMC infantry combat veteran, former crime and courts reporter for the Charleston Daily Mail, and creator of the award-winning West Side Fairy Tales horror and dark fiction podcast. Due for release by Henlo Press in October of 2023. Learn more at westsidefairytales.com slash westbygod.